Genesis chapter 39, we are continuing our series on trauma and trouble and triumph. You know, if you're going to talk about subjects like that, you ought to be able to start off with at least a little bit of a forced laugh. So can we do that tonight, uh, just a little bit this evening? Heard a story of a, a man one time who, uh, who passed away in this little mountain town, just one of these towns that's just built on the side of a, you know, just a steep cliff. You ever seen these churches that just are on a hillside and you wonder how in the world uh, do people walk up that, that driveway or that sidewalk to get into that place? Well, this was one of those little old churches in a, in a mountain village. I've heard people who come from the mountains say that some of the people around there uh, accused them of having one leg longer than the other one because they locked, rocked on those hills for so long. But this old man was the biggest man in town. He was sort of the, you know, the, the big, big Joe of that town or whatever it would be. He was tall, about six foot eight. He was heavy and he passed away at a ripe old age. They got his casket there at the funeral and had it inside. The funeral home placed it there and it came to the point at the end of the service where the pallbearers were going to carry him out. Now, y'all know how it is sometimes with the, the pallbearers. You know, sometimes if they're lifelong friends, they're at an age where picking up a six foot eight, you know, several hundred pound man in a casket might not be the best of their ability. And so these six fellows were trying to do that the best they could. And they came out of the front of this church to set it down on the wheeled cart at the bottom of the stairs that the funeral home had prepared. And as they set that casket on that wheeled cart, this church situated on the side of a hill, it got away from them and it started to roll down that road going straight down that path towards the main street that was there at the bottom of the hill. Well, all the people in that church began to pray real quickly to say, Lord, please let it go through that light without hitting any other car. And sure enough, <laughs> that casket went screaming down the hillside. It went right across and through the light and it went right into the street or the, across the street. There was a parking lot for the drugstore for the local town. And that, uh, that uh, casket went rolling right through the parking lot. Sure enough, came right to those doors and those doors thankfully were brand new. And so they opened quick enough, you know, automatically that that casket just went screaming right down the front aisle. Now, when they went, you know, at that speed and even through those doors, there was a curb there at those doors to keep the water out. And, uh, and when that casket hit that curb, it jostled it so strong that the casket popped open. And this, this big old man that had passed away, that, that jostle was just what he needed in this little town. He actually popped back to life and sat up. Well, the druggist was so surprised looking at what in the world was going on as this man in a casket was screaming down aisle one back towards the pharmacy. And all that man who woke up in that coffin could think as he went down that first aisle as he said, have you got anything to stop this coffin? Now that's a, that's a bad joke for a forced laugh here tonight, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> Have y'all ever seen those two old men on the Muppets that hang out in the gallery and just boo? That's what, you all get to be those two tonight. But uh, sometimes it's nice to start with a joke if you're going to be talking about trauma and trouble and triumph, if you're going to be walking through pain, we're, we're going to be doing that here tonight. 
uh, coming to the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39 and continuing the story where last week we were in Genesis chapter 37. And you might ask the question, well, why in the world if we were in 37 last week, will we be in 39 tonight? If you don't know, Genesis 38 is entirely about a mess that Judah himself uh, gets himself in with his daughter-in-law. And that situation you can read about later if you want. But as you read the chapters of Genesis about Jacob's life and Joseph's life, you see uh, that it's just one problem after another. And so Genesis 38 uh, deals with that. If you were to reach back even further, I believe it's Genesis 34, uh, that either 34 or 36, that talks about uh, Dinah, who is uh, Leah's brother's sister, and, and she is, is forced into a situation where she's abused, and her brothers actually become essentially murderers and defending her. And so there's just all kinds of things going on, even outside of the normal Sunday school story that we think of for the pieces that we know about Jacob and Joseph's life. But here's Joseph having made his way to Egypt, and he's going to enter into the home of a man named Potiphar. I'd invite you to look at verse 1 of chapter 39 of the book of Genesis, and we're going to begin reading there tonight. Genesis 39, beginning with verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there, and the Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you." because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness against, and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came in to me to laugh at me, but as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Let's say a word of prayer 
as we continue tonight. Father, tonight, as we see the example of someone who, in dealing with their pain, realized that their greatest hope was you, Lord, may the same be said of us, that in walking through pain and difficulty, in facing circumstances that we had not planned or hoped for, may we be people who are found faithful, not because we wouldn't get away with it, but because we, want to do, we don't want to do things that would be wrong in, in your sight. And so, Lord, may we be people who are accountable to one. And may, Lord, you work in our life in the places where uh, perhaps others' actions or maybe even our own shame and our own guilt are, are placing around us something that you uh, wouldn't place yourself. Lord, thank you for the words of the Lord Jesus, that we can come to him weary and heavy laden, that he's the one whose yoke uh, in whom we will find rest for our souls. And so, Lord, tonight, would you unburden our hearts and our souls in areas where we need it. We pray that today could be edifying, that it could be helpful, that we could be drawn closer to you and, uh, and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, tonight I've got a two-sided handout for you. There's nothing scarier than that, right, when the preacher gets up and you've got two sides of a handout to go through. I've always heard that the scariest thing is listening to a 14-point message that after the second or after the first 45 minutes, the pastor says, and for my second point, I won't, uh, I won't do that to you tonight, hopefully. But I've got a few blanks for you to fill in. One of the books that I've found really helpful through the years is a book called Mending the Soul by Stephen Tracy. Uh, if you were to, if tonight were to particularly resonate with you in any way that you say, boy, that was, there was something special about tonight, I think it might be worthwhile for you to, uh, to perhaps uh, see whether that book might be a, a good read. But once again, Mending the Soul uh, by Stephen Tracy. It's a book that's written primarily for pastors and small group leaders and counselors, uh, but I think it could be helpful to anybody, particularly those who have dealt with pain, dealt with abuse, uh, found his remarks really helpful uh, in thinking through this. Uh, as we, we come to tonight's story with Joseph and with Potiphar, you know, it's, it's interesting. I remember historically learning that in, in archaeology, one of the things that they found that in Egyptian culture, um, immorality was so widespread that there has been virtually no one that they have found uh, from Egypt, mummified or whatever, where there's not traces of venereal disease. That virtually the entire culture, some of them plagued without even knowing where it came from or how they got it just because it was so prevalent. And so what we see here tonight with Potiphar's wife may have very well been a situation that while she knew her husband might get mad, it was so culturally uh, consistent with the, the morale of the day, the morals of the day, uh, that perhaps we don't know her mindset, but she uh, was, was doing something she knew Joseph thought was wrong, but she probably didn't think it was as wrong as he might have thought uh, was wrong. But in this passage, we see how he uh, is, is willing to resist something even when he's gone through so much pain. Uh, and we'll get into that more in a minute. I, I really enjoyed a C.S. Lewis quote that I came across this week uh, that uh, he's one of my favorites. And this is one thing that he said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will most certainly be wrung and possibly broken. Uh, part of this is left out that I want to read. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, 
dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Your heart will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. There's a lie that the world says to each of us when we walk through pain, the best way to not have to deal with pain is to become cold, to become empty, to remove yourself from emotion or to remove yourself from genuine contact or relationship uh, or otherwise. I've got a, a sort of diagram on your page. If you'd like to drop some words into that tonight, uh, I found that to be really helpful. Stephen Tracy in his book uh, describes that for many of us, if we face pain, three negative ways, which are most common for folks to react, uh, is either in a rejection towards God, a withholding from God or from others, or simply a, a cowering or a cowardice uh, from, from others and from the Lord uh, as well. And so I've got some things here that are a little tough to read, but you've got them on your sheet. In one scenario, for folks, often when we deal with pain, our reaction, our defense mechanism will be to numb down our heart, to try to cease feeling, to become robotic or to go through the motions, to try to become a person who is absent from emotion. And so one of the ways in which we will seek to defend ourselves against future hurt is just to remove ourselves from emotion at all. A second framework that you might call either rejection or denial will be to try to explain away or to think away or perhaps tell ourselves things so much that we eventually believe it ourselves into where we either hide from the past uh, or we create a narrative in our mind that's different and it not only shapes what others might think that are in our circles, but it shapes what we ourselves uh, think over time. And so there's a, a point of hiding from the past. And then the last arrow where someone perhaps who has experienced pain, interestingly enough, sometimes will go into self-righteousness or being hypocritical or being judgmental. I have found sometimes in my life, in, in times in ministry, sometimes the folks who are most quick to be upset that we might naturally think, well, that person must have had a really insulated life where everybody always did exactly what they should. Not always. Sometimes the folks who are dealing with the most shame and the most guilt turn their gaze towards other people to pick out where their shame and guilt should be in order to alleviate themselves from looking inward. And so there's a reaction sometimes where folks can be self-righteous, be hypocritical, be judgmental. Now, out of all those options, do any of those options provide any hope? No. Is there life found in any of those options? No, there's not. Uh, Stephen gives six guidelines that I will attribute to him tonight, which I found helpful. I've got them uh, boxed out on your sheet as well, I think with some fill-in-the-blanks about a process of when we deal with pain, moving away from that uh, and moving back towards what the Lord would have for us. And I think we see many of these modeled in the story of Joseph over time, but this is what he goes with. Number one, establishing safety. That for some who are dealing with pain, they cannot get anywhere further until they're removed from the situation that is causing them harm. Some of you are praying tonight for folks who are in your life, they're in your circle of friends, they're in your family, they're in uh, acquaintances or neighbors that you know of where a child is having to go through something that they shouldn't. 
where a wife or a husband is having to go through something that they shouldn't, where a coworker or somebody is, is dealing with something, whether that's abuse, whether it's something that's simply uh, verbal, whether it's physical, whether it's otherwise, that, that the most important part to the rest of the healing becomes safety. In years past, I've heard a number of tough stories um, about men who did awful things to their wives all throughout the week only to ask for forgiveness at the altar on Sunday and go back to their wife on Monday and say, well, God forgave me, you ought to forgive me too. And the cycle continues and just keeps repeating every week and every week and every week. God's forgiveness is always available to us, thankfully, but there's a balance between that and enabling something that's wrong. And especially if there's times that safety uh, is at a need, it's important that we allow others and that we ourselves feel the freedom to establish safety. I'm sorry, I thought that was up there before. This is, this is me looking at the wrong circle or the wrong picture here. Number two, choose to face the truth and feel. Choose to face the truth and feel. Remember Lewis's comments about if we try to close our heart up in a box, in this casket or this coffin of, of safety, something will also change about our heart there to make it impenetrable and unshakable and, and not all of that. Most of that's not good. Um, I believe it was someone else who said uh, that in the darkness, you can't grow flowers, you can only grow mushrooms. And our hearts, in the same way, we need to face the reality of whatever truth there is, to acknowledge that, whether that's our own shame or whether that's someone else's, to seek the grace of the Lord, the forgiveness of others if we need, or, or to forgive others in the ways that we can, and to, to allow ourselves to feel. The third thing, uh, to tell and to feel the story. Not the story that makes us come out looking exactly like we want to, not the story that somehow is, is shaped in such a way to, to make it you know, be a, some different than, something different than the truth of, of what's there, but to be able to share a story that's hurtful, to be able to have folks in our life who love us and walk with us uh, in that, to perhaps at times have a counselor or, or a pastor or someone uh, to be able to walk through that with us. Number four, to be able to identify the distortions and to reclaim God's original design. For the child who had to walk through unspeakable things as a child, to not then remove themselves from everything that's, that's even close to that realm as an adult, uh, to be able to allow themselves to enjoy and to feel and to know and to experience, to have relationships with people and not be scared that they'll always be like the past relationship that happened this one time, to identify the things that were distorted and to realize that God's design was not that and to work towards reclaiming those things. Number five, to repent of deadness and denial. To be willing to say, Here's where I've deadened my heart. Here's where I've closed myself off. Here's where I haven't been honest. Here's where I've not uh, been forthright. Uh, there's times where we're not called to be honest with everybody in the sense that everybody's got to know everything, but have you been honest with the Lord? Have you been honest with the people uh, that it concerns? And then number six, for whatever pain there is, being willing to mourn the loss and dare to hope. Being willing to mourn the loss and dare to hope. We're willing to acknowledge that something happened that was painful, to mourn and to grieve over that in ways that are appropriate if we've never done that, and then to allow ourselves to hope. You've probably had seasons of your life where you were scared to hope. You were scared to be optimistic. 
There may be some of you in here that, they, that you'd say, well, if I was really honest and we asked my family, I'm always the glass half empty person. And maybe some of that would be your personality, but are you, is there anybody in here tonight you'd be scared to hope? I'd encourage you uh, to allow the Lord to work uh, in your heart because all of us need hope. And so uh, Stephen gives the outcome of that. If you sort of, I think on your sheet, you've got these white bars in between it. That for the person who's numb and robotic and going through the motions with the work of Christ in their heart, moving them towards acknowledging and, and seeking the Lord in the ways that are appropriate, then out of numbness and robotic feelings and going through the motions, now there's an honesty and there's an emotional openness, openness and a being present. That's important. Uh, Pastor Brandon quoted one of my favorite quotes. I remember John Piper, the first person uh, that I, I'd heard say that because he talked about a placard that hung in his home when he was a child. But he quote, Pastor Brandon quoted it Sunday, life's only a moment, will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. All of us have points of looking backward that we go, you know what? I sure wish my priority had been this instead of that. Uh, I sure wish uh, uh, that I'd invested more in this family member, this person, whatever it was, instead of whatever I was chasing after. Being willing to be emotionally open and present and honest. In the places where we're seeking to hide that the work of Christ in our hearts moves us towards an authenticity that's not scared to say, you know what, my testimony is more about Jesus than it is about me. And the hope for anybody in this room is not in anything that has to do with me personally, you personally, the hope is in Christ. And so with our battle wounds, with our scars, with the points of deep water that we've walked through, we can face all of that. We can be authentic in that. And then the last one, for those who are trying to find their strength in self-righteousness or perhaps hypocrisy and being judgmental, that doesn't provide any hope. It doesn't provide any life. People won't last there very long. But in Christ, we can be honest with God. We can have a, a vibrant time with the Lord when His grace is what matters, when His truth is more important than whatever we're trying to sort of convince ourselves of or otherwise. I remember a quote by Beth Moore years ago said, boy, if you think your quiet time is boring, imagine how God must feel. And so if you're in here today and you're saying, well, I don't know if I'm getting very much. Well, <laughs> Lord, are you getting very much from what I'm doing either? Are you willing to be honest with the Lord? Do you know that God's big enough for your honesty? Remember Samson after he'd crushed all those Philistine heads with that jawbone? He lifted up his eyes to heaven and he, he had this ultra spiritual prayer, uh, prayer. You remember what he said? Am I now to die of thirst? Now, I don't know about you, but I'd be scared to pray a prayer like that. And God gave him water in his mercy. And Samson was on that grinding mill and his, uh, that grinding wheel, his, his hair had been cut off at the end of his life. He was about to go in and have his last moment. Remember what he said to the Lord then? Lord, will you give me my strength one more time? Because these Philistines took my eyes out. Amen. He didn't say, for your great name, so that the battle will be won. Now, God was seeking to accomplish those things. But Samson, I'm not recommending praying like that. But can I just say to you, God's big enough to handle our honesty. God's big enough for us to go to him and have genuine time with him. We don't need to create this distance because you know what? Jesus Christ has closed the distance for us. He has ushered us into the throne room of our Father. And, um, and we can have a real time with the Lord that's life-giving because Jesus Christ has bridged all the gap that we'll ever have. 
And so what was once built in something that we couldn't do uh, can now be rooted uh, in, in something real. I don't know if any of you have ever had to read a book that was just a long, long book. I don't know if any of you have ever had to read a book by a Russian author, maybe Tolstoy. Uh, my, my wife decided to read War and Peace. Uh, a few, I, I remember an old Charlie Brown cartoon where Charlie Brown got War and Peace from the library and he had to roll it home in a wagon. It was so big. You know, some of these just massive novels. There's another massive novel that some actually believe to be the greatest novel ever written. I don't know that I can give my vote there, but Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karametsov. I don't know if anybody's ever read that book. Philip Yancey, the Christian author, feels that that's, uh, that's his favorite book and he feels it's the greatest of all time. Heard other people say that too. Uh, but, but The Brothers Karametsov tells the story of a dysfunctional family and two of the brothers that are in that story, Ivan and Alyosha, are having a conversation one day, Alyosha becoming a monk and Ivan, who really is trying to lose his faith in God as quick as he can, he makes this accusation against uh, the Lord in explaining why he, uh, he is not himself someone who wants to continue in faith. He begins to talk to Alyosha about all the bad things he knows that's happened in the world, places where there's trauma, pain, abuse, people who have done things that are wrong. And he says this about his ticket to heaven, to Alyosha. He says, we cannot afford to pay so much for a ticket for admittance into heaven. And so I hasten to return the ticket I've been sent. If I'm honest, it's my duty to return it as long as possible before the show. And that's just what I'm trying to do, Alyosha. It isn't that I reject God. I'm simply returning him most respectfully the ticket price that would entitle me to a seat. For many folks walking through pain, seeing pain in the world or seeing pain in their own life and walking through it is a way in which what they will try to do to alleviate that pain is to reject or to rebel against the Lord or to walk away from him completely. I would bet most of you in this room tonight know someone in your life that eventually decided, I don't want to have anything to do with God because of something that happened to me or something I see happening in the world. One of the great questions for folks to sort of seemingly raise is, if God is so good, why is there pain? Now, there's a number of ways to attack that answer, so to speak. And I think sometimes when we have those conversations, we have to sense the Holy Spirit's leading. One of the ways that I seem to find the most strength in myself is that, yes, we do face pain in this life, and sin has as its fruit pain, sin and death that come into the world together, and pain with that. Now, think about the Lord Jesus in Gethsemane saying, Lord, if it's your will, can I go any other way than, than what's about to happen? That let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus took more pain than we'll ever have to when he didn't earn it himself. And so if Jesus walked through pain intentionally when he didn't have to, I can take his hand and walk through the pain that he's called me to. But as we look at Joseph's story, what I find remarkable is that Joseph in Genesis 39 remains true to the Lord while back home, the guilt and the shame that is plaguing the brothers and continues in Genesis 38, continues to lead to not only pain and shame and guilt, but immorality and just more of a cycle of, of a mess. On the back side of your sheet tonight, I've got a few points for you. If you're still filling in the blanks, if you say, look, you only get one side, I'm picking one or the other, that's fine. But if you're doing the, uh, the second page, let me try to walk through a few things in the passage in the time that we've got left tonight. Joseph comes to work in Potiphar's home. 
And not only uh, does Potiphar's wife take a liking to what happens, but Potiphar himself does. Now, some of you have supervised people before. You've had a job where you were in charge of different people. Have you ever been in a situation where all you had to worry about was the food you ate? Most of you who've been in management before say, no, it wasn't like that. Potiphar had a really good situation. He found that Joseph was so honorable, so respectable, so hardworking, and God was with him in such a way that he had to not concern himself with anything. And so we don't know exactly what Potiphar is filling up his time and his life with, but it seems that his wife is alone a lot. And so Potiphar's wife is there and seeing Joseph, and it says in verse 6, did you see this? Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now how good looking do you have to be for the Bible to record that you're handsome in form and appearance? I would be worried to see what the Bible would say about me, you know. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and Potiphar's wife saw him as property and said, well, might as well take advantage of the situation. I've got a few things here for you tonight. The first one says this, sometimes people seek to take advantage of those who've been through pain. Sometimes people seek to take advantage of those who have been through pain. One of the tragic things, if you've ever known anybody who's been through a really tough marriage, been through a situation of abuse, been through a situation where things just aren't right, one of the saddest things about their life is they get sort of indoctrinated in such a way that they keep repeating that, perhaps with a new spouse, perhaps with a new situation, a new living situation, whatever it might be, they keep walking through the same difficulty, perhaps because their self-worth has taught them to think, well, I'm not worth any more than that. But there are also those who, when they're looking at Folks around them, they know, okay, the people I can take advantage of are the ones who've been through pain. They're the ones who don't have their guard up the same way that others would. Joseph is brought in from a foreign country. He's probably at this point still just learning the language. He's, you know, just a lost individual, no family, no friends. He's here all alone. Potiphar's wife knows, who's he going to tell? Who's he going to go to? And she begins to seek after uh, him to seek after where, where she can accomplish uh, something here. And Joseph amazingly doesn't fall prey to that. Uh, he doesn't simply say, well, you know, I'm going through a rough time and God sure didn't look out for me, so I'm not looking out for him. No, Joseph is, uh, seeks to honor the Lord. The second thing, sometimes faithfulness and the truth of God don't make problems disappear. Wouldn't it be wonderful if every time we did something right, all of our problems went away? Wouldn't it be great if we knew every decision we had to make, if we just made the decision that honored the Lord, that would be the end of the problem. But life is often not like that. We think of that great verse, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know, that's true. But in our microwave generation, we have begun to think that that is an instantaneous, momentary, resisting, and not a consistent resisting. Sometimes we have to keep resisting and keep resisting. C.S. Lewis also said, you know, sometimes the harder you resist or the, 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 the struggle with sin gets harder the longer you resist it. And Joseph has to resist and resist and resist. He doesn't have other work options. He can't put his resume in somewhere else. He's stuck. And he keeps having to go into the same place and face the same decision. Because I got, I'm probably going to tell you this, Potiphar is an important man in Egypt. The Bible tells us that Joseph was handsome. It's probably pretty likely that Potiphar's wife uh, was not an ugly woman. 
She made it into one of the highest officials' homes as his wife. Joseph is tempted day after day after day. Here's what Joseph realizes that's important for us as well. Number three, dealing with pain by rebellion doesn't work. Dealing with pain by rebellion doesn't work. If it had, then that younger son who had gone away from his father's house into a far country and wasted his wealth wouldn't have ended up with the pigs. That for each one of us, when we face difficulty, when we face pain, so many times we're prompted by Satan to say, look, God's not been good to you. You don't need to try so hard right now. Just walk down this road and we won't find peace there. We might find happiness for a season. We might find something that's pleasurable for a certain amount of time, but rebellion doesn't lead to life. It only leads to chains. So dealing with pain by rebelling or by rebellion doesn't work. Number four, your pain label can lead the ones you've loved the best to trust you the least. I, I was talking about books that are, that are hard to get through a little bit ago. How many of you read The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne in school? Any of you have to read that? Now, there might be many of you in here who like that book. Can I be honest with you? Can I be genuine here? Let's be authentic. Part of my healing tonight. I didn't enjoy that book. I don't know that I read a book that I liked less than that book when I was in school. Something about Nathaniel Hawthorne's writing style, his big words, I don't know what it was, but I didn't care for that book. Um, and, and I wasn't exactly at a time in my life where I liked to read either. You know, I was a high school boy, so you forgiveness, give, extend that to me. But do you know the premise of the book, The Scarlet Letter, that in this Puritan town, there is a woman who's committed adultery and she's forced to wear a giant uh, A on her dress each day to mark her as an adulterer for the rest of her life. And you find out as the story goes on that much like the woman that's in John 8 where she gets drug out to the crowd but the man is nowhere to be found, uh, that this woman who is forced to wear an A uh, on her chest, there's no man who's been forced to do this. Strangely, she's uh, the only one and the book delves into that story as you find out more and more. But have you ever felt like you've had a scarlet letter to wear? There's been a mistake or there's been a failure, there's been a difficulty and you, you feel marked by it. I think in one of your life group lessons it talked about Cain, you know, being marked by God, being sent away. And he had a choice for how he was going to react to that. He didn't react very well to it. But you know, there's times in our life where it becomes evident what people know either about mistakes we've, we've made or perhaps people know about hard things we've been through. And there's a way that you don't escape it. And you, you can move to a new town or, or somewhere or something like that, but there's, there's this idea that pain follows you if you're not careful, this pain label that can still be there. And imagine what it was like for Joseph to do what was right and to run out, even leave behind his, his cloak, his outer garment, whatever that might have been, and leave that behind and, and run out and here's Potiphar, who trusted him so much. Imagine every, you know, worker evaluation Potiphar has with Joseph. Joseph, how's it going today? Uh, good, sir. Anything I can be doing better? No, Joseph, I got to tell you, you're doing everything pretty good. All I got to do is eat around here, and that's about it. Appreciate you taking such good care of the place. Okay, great. See you again in six months when we have our next evaluation. Now, I know we didn't really do this in, you know, Egyptian culture, but follow me with the metaphor here. And so we've got, we've got uh, Potiphar... Coming in here with Joseph, and Potiphar's been Joseph's best friend as much as a, as a master can be for a servant. 
And all of a sudden, the person who had trusted him the most, when he hears the lies of his wife, turns on him in that way. Verse 16, she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. She told him the same story. The Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, his anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison. What it must have been like for Joseph, who remembered what it was like sometime before to call out to his brothers and to scream and to beg and to plead, please don't sell me, please don't sell me, please don't sell me. Even before that, he'd screamed and pled with them, please don't throw me into the pit. Perhaps from the bottom of the pit, he cried out, please don't kill me, please don't do this, please don't do that. What it was like for him to call out for help and for nobody to help and for him to be drug away. And now in Egypt, he's going through the same cycle again. He's being put into prison. Not that prison's ever been a good place, but prison in the ancient world is especially not a good place. Perhaps trying to get a word in edgewise to Potiphar. And he's not heard. He's not believed. And here he is, back in prison. He's gone from the pit to the prison. If you want to really alliterate, I guess we can say he's gone from the pit to Potiphar to the prison. One day he's going to be in the palace, but, uh, but right now he's back, whatever's below square one, that's where he's at. You know, your pain label can lead the ones you've loved the best to trust you the least. Despite whatever trust that Joseph's built at the end, he's just a servant. He's just a slave and Potiphar doesn't believe him and Joseph's thrown in prison. Number five, which is somewhat like it, thinking about Potiphar's wife, sometimes even people with no character will try to use shame against you. Sometimes even people with no character will try to use shame against you. Do you know what the word Satan means, what his name means? The accuser. Has there ever been anybody less qualified to accuse anyone else in the history of eternity? No. But the idea that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, that in his wheelings and dealings and what he's seeking to do, one of those things is to accuse others what they've done. That even people with no character will try to use shame against us. Oh, but how the passage ends. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Where have we seen that before? Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Showed him steadfast love. How can that be so? Some steadfast love, right? He's gone from being hated in his own home to being sold to slavery and drug all the way across uh, hundreds of miles down to Egypt. Now he's stuck there, thrown into being a servant. Even when he does that well, he's falsely accused and thrown into prison. What in the world is the steadfast love of the Lord? Well, even in those circumstances, God was with him and still working towards what he was bringing about 
As I mentioned last week, by the time we, met, we get to Genesis chapter 50, we'll see jo- Joseph's great realization to his brothers when he says, what you intended for evil, God had intended for good. And he has sent me ahead of you to preserve life. You know, when we're walking through the pit and we're walking through the prison, we don't see what God is doing. We often don't know. But aren't you thankful that God's love is steadfast? That old King James word, long-suffering, God keeps putting up with us. His love is consistent and steadfast and continues. I'll tell you what, if you know this, will you sing it with me as we close tonight? Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er, Jesus, Jesus, Precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. Before we close tonight, the woman who wrote that song penned that song at a point in her life after she had watched her husband drown while trying to save her son from drowning. And in a time and even history not too far back in the past where a widow was barely able to make any men's e- uh, ends meet, uh, couldn't perhaps care for herself and that way it was her church who continued to bring food by and to care for her and she saw the provision of the Lord even in the deepest pain that she'd ever walked through and she penned those words, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.'" You know, as we close tonight, I wanna invite you, if you're walking through pain tonight or someone you love is walking through pain, in light of whatever difficulty, like we look at tonight, a messy, difficult story that's recorded in the life of Joseph, I think he kept hoping and he was able to keep hope in the steadfast love of his father. And he saw that continue to come through more and more. May it be said, may it be shown in our life that we also hope in the steadfast love of our God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the sweetness of trusting in the Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, that we could have the grace to trust him more. So, Father, would you do that work in our hearts that only you can. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. May you use anything said tonight to edify uh, your word and your spirit in our hearts to, to lean us more towards looking like your son Jesus. And for anything that would not accomplish that goal, Lord, may it be lost. So, Father, we thank you, we look to you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.